it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Something seems really dumb about this, but here we go. This is the One Sensational Shot Network, and you're listening to The Evening Glass with me, Fletcher Walton. Joined this issue by comedy's Aidan McCaffrey for a whistle-stop preview of 2020's big releases. Preceded, as ever, by about 45 minutes of pop culture pub conversation as we take the opportunity for a final chinwag before Aidan's impending life leap from London to Leeds. Enjoy! Uh, can I say something before you start this? Please, yeah. I've meaning to say it to you. Have you seen Mendes react to losing the, the, the best director Oscar? Does he give it a Samuel L. Jackson? Look? Not quite. So he doesn't... <clears throat> I like honest reactions. We all like the Samuel L. Jackson thing because like, of course he wanted to fucking win. Yeah, yeah. And as yeah. it turned out, he hasn't been nominated since. So Mendes does this. When they announced Bong... Is it Bong Joon-ho? Is that his name? Bong Joon-ho. When they announced him, this is what Mendes does. Right, so I'll need to describe that for the podcast audience. It's a Robert De Niro kind of shake of the head. That's it, brilliant. It's a sort of... It's... it's, <laughs> it's Oh, okay. They went that way. That's that's the reaction. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. and it's great. And I sort of <laughs> I feel a bit for him. Well, I don't feel for him because he's already got one. But it, it, he he's won every best director award this season. See, he, it's kind of entirely legitimate that he just thought he yeah. might win, but he doesn't. He, but so when it happens, he's like, oh, okay. That's great. They've gone for that, and I love it. I love that's I love really our reactions that aren't just. Tell you what is weird though. Tarantino, nothing. Turns out... you mean no response or no wins? No response to, to, to Bong Joon-ho winning. Even though Tarantino, as Bong Joon-ho says in his speech, Tarantino's been one of his biggest like um, support vocal supporters, yeah. saying, oh, he says Tarantino would always put my films in his top ten. Thank you. And so when I watched it, because I heard that first, I thought you'd see Tarantino be like, fuck yeah, my man's winning an Oscar. He yeah. just, nothing! It's like he doesn't even know they've got to his category. It's weird. That is odd. Because <laughs> yeah, he championed the host. I can't remember what you said about Snowpiercer, but that's nice. So I, um, you remind me of... Uh, here's a, a tiny piece of pop culture ephemera, which I adore. On YouTube, there is the end credits of the very end of the 1990 World Cup, which was the first World Cup that I had any understanding of, right? So it has Des Lynham saying, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, one last time, we'll have Luciano play us out. So it's soundtracked by um, Nessun Dorma, as sung by Luciano Pavarotti. And it ha- I don't expect Aidan, you to know any of this, but there might be some people out there who, who get something from this. There's a lot of slow motion footage and it all feels more... Um, well, like Gaza crying and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, it feels elegaic because it's to Pavarotti. And there's a shot of Bobby Robson, then England manager, former Fulham player, former um, Ipswich Town manager. And he's watching, I think it's when he's watching England lose the penalty shootout and he's got his arms crossed, it's shot side on. And his only reaction is a slight eyebrow raise. But isn't there a shot of like Lineker like doing that or something? There's yeah, there, there is. Some I'm, good see, stuff even like though I'm not that, invested yeah. in football, I do like weird artifacts mm. that just stick in your noggin like that. Lineker, what Lineker does famously is um, when Gascoigne gets booked, which means he would miss the final if That's England it, appeared yeah. in it. Lineker gestures to the German bench, sorry, the West Germany bench, essentially saying that they cajoled the referee into awarding the yellow card. And, and gives it the I see what you did kind of thing. Ah, right. And does a like, yep, yep, yep. But it's know. interesting because the little glance that can sort of just stick Lovely. in your mind. He's proved to be a really good bloke, Gary Lineker. Uh, yeah, well, you mean like as a professional broadcaster? As a broadcaster and as a fellow, he's always first on Twitter saying, no, nah, that's bullshit. You know, about Tory policies and any number of yeah, things. He's got a great feud with Piers Morgan going on. Nice. Which is as, you know, as, um, as opposed to easy progressivism and liberal point scoring as I am, 
like yeah, give Piers Morgan a kicking every opportunity. He's just, I, I have a friend who I, I I shan't mention the bloke's name, but I have a friend who had occasion to work closely with Kelvin McKenzie, not because he worked for a Kelvin McKenzie newspaper, by the way. Um, and he said that what this was about seven years ago now, but what my friend perceived in Kelvin McKenzie was a man who had taken on a mantle and could now had no other cards to play and had, had essentially burned most bridges because do you, you remember Kelvin McKenzie Edder at the sun? Yes. Yeah. Um, he couldn't go back even if he wanted to. And now he was not, not a pathetic figure, but certainly within media circles, almost a pariah because he'd yeah. just gone too far. And Piers Morgan's on, is on the, is on the verge of moving into that territory. I mean, people like, is he though? Because I only say he now exists in an ecosystem, news media, commercial ecosystem, where a lot of people like him voicing those opinions. And he's trying to Fox News eyes ITV Morning. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of not fully convinced it's entirely going to work, but it seems like as it exists now, there's enough support there that it's fine. I kind of wish... Uh, who's the hot presenter that he presents? Yeah. Does she give the liberal... No, I don't think then? she does. I kind of wish it was a bit more like that. Like, so maybe, if she doesn't, that's concerning. Maybe nothing. if it was like that, maybe if the co-presenter was a... Um, uh, who's the MSNBC lady? Maddow. Yeah, if yeah. it was like a Maddow and a him. Maybe that would be way, way too she's intense. An, she's an attack dog, isn't she? <laughs> but, but, maybe, but, but, you know... Yeah, yeah. But at least you'd sort of get counterbalance. Although you might end up with a crossfire situation. Remember crossfire? Who was on that? Uh, it was Tucker Carlson back in the right, day right. and some other guy. And it was basically like a liberal and a right wing guy going at each other. And John Stewart famously went, John Stewart famously went on yeah. and just like was de- demolished him and was just like, you know, this guy, this is awful. This is an awful format that just kind of feeds the problems in this country. But at the same time, I also think, is it not worse if you just have the right wing guy and yeah. then someone who's not actually calling him out on it? Well, this, yeah, this brings up another bet noir of mine, which is the notion of no platforming. Now, I've no problem, of course, with not affording a platform to fucking David Duke or David Irving. But nevertheless, the, one of the problems I have with no platforming is that it's like um, uh, offences in the eye of the beholder. Establishment figures with mainstream opinions like Jermaine Greer, because there's a tiny cohort of maybe 8% of a student population that thinks her opinions not just are uncomfortable, but that, that that make them feel unsafe, which I think is bullshit, then that's a problem because you do... I, and she's not even right-wing, but you do need to set different opinions against Absolutely. one another. This is why... So I think there's people you just shouldn't give platforms to because they haven't earned it. So like mm. Milo Yiannopoulos, just don't give him anything. Oh, yeah. He's a fucking contrarian... Uh, <laughs> and I, troll. And I get a lot out of him, but you're right. He's yeah. not really big enough to just give Just don't a put him on anything. Peterson, John Peterson, I do not like. We've discussed him a lot. I really hate him. You totally should give him a platform because he might be wrong, but he's formidable. He's a really formidable yeah, debater. Yeah, yeah. And the best thing you can do is take him down. And the best way you can do that is literally have a debate with him. And uh, yeah, well, so it's just like, but if you have hired Milo Yiannopoulos, just let him speak. Don't. <laughs> but if he's already on your bill, don't take him down because he'll just make the left look bad. Yeah. Uh, I think that one of the problems... One of the problems As in, don't take with, him off the bill. Don't, you do take him down rhetorically. One problem with Peterson, and I'm always interested in what he has to say, I'm broadly supportive of him saying it. I'm also in support of many of the points he makes. But one problem is when he debates with someone who feels that they're representing the left, those people on the left are so rusty that they can't argue with him. They yeah. can't hang with Jordan Peterson. He's He may not be more intelligent than them, but he's um, 
far more polished. Yeah, well, battle ready. No, 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 no this is the thing. Ready. Like, I always think this. Like, because I sometimes think, what would I do if I was on a debate stage with Boris Johnson or David Cameron? And I always think, like, I'd have to know weeks before because this is their job. Yeah. That's Jordan Peterson's life. And anyone who goes against like, I think he's wrong. I wouldn't get up against him. Because the fact is, he's polished. It is a bit like going up against a professional boxer. But it's more than that. And it's... that's why the Helen Lewis interview that I sent you is good. Because actually, yeah. she is formidable. She has told it all through. And the Kathy Newman one fails because she isn't ready for an intellect. And when you say polish, it's more than just polish. He has the intellectual rigour to his arguments. And yeah. Kathy Newman is lost in that. And it was a shame because... Is she the Channel 4 presenter? Yeah, yeah, I think that's her name, yeah. It's a shame because, obviously, even if even if I agreed completely with what Jordan Peterson says, I, w- I don't want to see him win 5-0. I want to see a really tense battle. If, you know, if you're going to the um, a World Cup final, you don't want to see a walkover. You want to see something you pretty see, close. You want to see a four-wall draw that goes to penalties. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, pretty much exactly. And that's the kind of thing that you should get if you've got, you know, like... If someone were opposed to Christopher Hitchens, they'd have a real tough... T- you'd, you'd need a, a oh, prime yeah. operator. Yeah. But I, there's only so many times I can watch on YouTube like five-minute clips of Hitchens, you know, barely even trying and winning easily. <laughs> yeah. And what you want to see is him in in real combat with yeah. somebody. And he was a, he was a high-functioning alcoholic, right? Fuck yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. It's like his brain continues to operate fine. Oh, it's Imagine if he wasn't on stuff. There's, there's so, yeah. many, so many successful people that to an extent are eventually undone by their vices, but you wonder, my God, like I can't I literally can't get out of bed if I've had six halves. Well no possibly. like so I've lately <laughs> so I I stopped drinking in like twenty fourteen and last year I had like five drinks at two weddings. <laughs> yeah. And now, especially since I've realised that I'm um, gluten free and I've realised oh sorry, I, I did stop drinking for psychological reasons. But me getting back into it was hindered by the fact that I've had skin issues and I've now realised, ah, I'm gluten-free. That means I can have gluten-free beer. So I started drinking it more. But I've started to notice, even though I'm only ever having like a couple of drinks, I've started to forget things more often. Yeah. Like I had two drinks with you the other night after the cinema and it was actually unusually strong. And I felt tipsy for the first time Did in ages. Did you have points? No, they were just bottles. Yeah. But this is how lightweight I've become. But no, three, three, three two or four bottles of 5.5%. I'm not keeping it session. And the next day... Uh, my mind was a bit... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I can't hack it. I cannot hack it. Your you, mind you, was? Wow. I, as in, like, as I was forgetting obvious things. I mean, you the know me... The next day or at the time? Next day. Huh. Um, you're, uh, you know me. My memory's scatty and I often forget things and struggle to grasp things. And that's an exasperated yeah. thing. But this is the thing. Going up against um, Hitchens, high-function alcoholic, his brain was not deterred by these chemicals. Yeah. And so if he's not drinking and you're going in for the debate against him or if he is, you know, you've got to be ready. And that's the thing. Peterson, I wouldn't go up against Peterson. He does this all the time. I know he's wrong, but I need someone like Helen Lewis to go up against him who's done a research. One, disagrees with him. Two, has done a research on him. She wouldn't have just waltzed into that and think, oh shit, I better do some Googling now. Because she would have yeah. gone in there ready, which is why, you know, it does end up coming up. I mean, I think she wins, but... If I'm, guess if I'm more honest, it comes off as a sort of weird stalemate where he lands a couple of blows on her, she lands a couple of blows on him, and it's like an awkward... <laughs> and that's what it should be. Because, yeah. I mean, my own opinion is that Peterson has many... Quite aside from how well he articulates his points, he has many compelling and important points to make. But it should still be possible for somebody who disagrees with him to... Yeah, for, for it to end in a draw. 
really. And this is one of the things, one of the critical problems with our left. Well, this came up with Lawrence Fox. Like, didn't he go? Didn't didn't some black feminist invite him for dinner? So after the whole question time thing, she invited him for dinner, and they they tweeted and said, "Just had a nice little chat, a bit of debate. We don't agree with each other, but it's fine." And it was like, yeah. And then she then got attacked by people like, "Why are you hanging out with him?" It's like, fuck's sake! This is. You need to hang out with people like this. It's just like, you need to meet people from here. Oh, it's just oh, it's so annoying. <laughs> when we applied for Pointless and we were unsuccessful, and that was a shame because I could have done with that money. And I think we had a good, <laughs> so oppo- we had a good opportunity of doing well on it. And then it would always come down to the last question. But if it was film, or if, yeah, if it was film, we would win. We'd fucking walk it. <laughs> I think we would, yeah. Uh, I put in the application... It said, like, how do you know one another? Why are you friends? And I said, because we can disagree without being disagreeable. Yeah. And then two weeks later, I found out that's something Obama famously said. So I accidentally quoted Barack Obama. You hear him talk about race and the uh, perspective he has as growing up as someone, you know, who had an African father, but a white mother, and but then someone who's, you know, gone on and studied constitution. He's pretty fucking sound. But he, and and he's, he's, so I listened to the podcast, Pod Save America, by his former aide who helped him get elected. And they say, like, obviously, whenever you do a speech, they have to write a speech for him and do all this stuff. And he said that big speech he did on race, like, during the election, where he had to address it. You know, like, Kennedy had to address his Catholicism. Oh, yeah. Um, and he was just like, he didn't didn't prepare. And they were just like, really? You want a speech for this? He's like, sorry, I know what I want to say. Did it work? Yeah. Because I, I, I don't remember the speech. Yeah, you know, it totally worked. Like, I know what I want to say. I've been thinking about it for 40 years. Yeah. It's fine. But he, he grew up outside of racism. What way? And that's what's interesting to me because he didn't know his old man, and he grew up in Hawaii, and I think he's he has spoken. No, about but this. I didn't. Didn't he spend the first few years not in Hawaii, like in Alabama? Essentially, he in his entire adolescence he grew up separate from conventional American racist yeah. bigotry and prejudice, and that gave him a, another insight. So it, obviously, when he went to America, he then began developing an insight of what bigotry was. But growing up outside of it, and again, this is a thing where I know that Britain, I don't like it when people always say we have so much more to do. Now, Britain is doing pretty well, like globally speaking, yeah, Britain is. is doing pretty well. It was always the case that in the 50s, 60s, 70s, American artists would come to Britain and find it as an oasis because there wasn't the bigotry that they experienced every day, not just in the American South, but even in the American North. All those Motown artists of the 60s, the hit makers, when they came to tour here, they go into a hotel and they get a room and this isn't segregated. Yeah. They had no understanding that we yeah. didn't have that in this country. Um, but the other point I was going to make about Obama is that he did teach me that articulation and great oratory doesn't have to be slick in the way I expected it to be because when I was told he was a great public speaker and then I started seeing him, you know, early days at the beginning of his presidency, I thought he does seem to stop a lot. No, he can sometimes. He thinks, if, he's not, he? if he's not doing a big speech, he can mumble. Oh, uh, the mumbling's fine, but I, yeah, I just... and he can sort of waver in and out. It's like that very. Do you remember that first Romney debate uh, where everyone was like Romney thrashed him? He just wasn't. He just went in not ready. I didn't quite see it, but that's because I was like listening to the arguments. I mean, like, well, he's right and he's wrong, but stylistically, yeah. Romney as the person challenging him, who has the time to actually spend six weeks doing debate prep, who's hungry for it. Yeah. You know, smashed it out of the park whereas Obama who's busy being president and is four years out of practice oh of course yeah, yeah yeah. and actually that revealed yeah it's not like he's always going to be switched on actually he did after and they got it together for a second my favourite moments in politics is that whole he, he said that you know Benghazi wasn't an act of terror and Obama just goes check the transcript no because you got you, are you saying are you saying that it wasn't 
you didn't say it was natural terror, and he's just going, as you will, Governor. And, it's like, oh, <laughs> and then, they, then the moderator goes, he actually did say it was natural terror. Because Romney fucking just buys into the fucking right-wing Fox News ecosystem bullshit, yeah. where they just literally, even the presidential candidates are buying into it, and they're not... Oh, Trump mm. does it as well. It's like um, Trump got Im- nearly got impeached because he bought into this bullshit Hunter Biden story. That's yeah. just a nonsense right-wing conspiracy theory, and it's just like... Oh, wait, is it? Yeah. So what's your account of it, then? It's just, it's just this, the, the, the idea that like Biden had somehow gotten this job wasn't true. And he Trump just bought into the Fox News line that it was some example of corruption. And uh, in, in, hold on, in what way wasn't it? I thought that Hunter Biden got the job because his surname was Biden. Um, isn't he some kind of meth addicted fuck up? I think Hunter's. Oh, is he? Now I don't care either way. Like I, I, for Donald Trump to accuse someone of corruption is just utterly absurd. <laughs> no, it's mental, isn't it? <laughs> I'm going to drain the swab and then I'm going to put in even more pollution into the swab. That's just mental, isn't it? Can I, I pause and get a glass of water? Oh, we can keep, we just keep it running, yeah. I'll get my beer as well. Drinking in the middle of the day, look at me. I don't want to go all the way into Hunter Biden because I don't know enough about it. Who do you suppose is um, getting the nomination? Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know. Oh. I don't know. God, it's so hard to game out. I think I am being an optimist. I think Sanders... I would like to think the same thing will happen to Sanders as happened last time, and that there's a ceiling to his support. I, so, yeah. Uh, which will mean other forces will have to coalesce around someone else more centrist. Well, don't get me wrong. The, the Democrats, I think, are shooting themselves in the foot in, in, in a broader way, which is there was loads of talented people who went for the presidency. And it's like they need to be going for the Senate. Buttigieg needs to go. Oh, yeah, you're right. He needs yeah, to yeah. go for the Senate because the, they could win this. I, I would bet against it now, but they could beat him. Trump is beatable. Mm. But they've got all these shit hot talent, new talent, like Buttigieg. Um, who's the Texan guy? Oh, Beto thing. Yeah, Beto Walk has didn't even win in Texas. He lost that seat. Mm. But he did much better than most Democrats. So then he goes, right, let's go for president. No. Yeah, that's mad, You're in a it? prime position to take a Texan you know Senate like? seat. And, you, and if a Democrat gets in, they're going to need the Senate. If a Democrat gets in next year and it's and it's still divided house, they're fucked. We watched the last six years of the Obama presidency. They will not accomplish anything. It will just be holding the line yeah. against Republican bullshit. And that is not enough if you're a progressive. And I actually do think the wall, including Buttigieg, who I nominally like, is being a bit selfish. And, you know, if he runs and he wins, fine. Uh, I guess there's some worth in that. But if he doesn't, then he's just wasted everybody's time. <laughs> yeah, they, they are adopting the same mindset, although this mindset was successful. There's all of those directors that, I, that I'm sceptical of. Uh, Trank, Trevaro, John Wells where they make a picture and then they're given a Marvel film or a, another big yeah. franchise. And I don't understand how John Wells can make... Was it called Cop Car? Oh, yeah. Yeah, can make Cop Car for a couple of million, lose a million, and then get the, the Spider-Man picture. Well, it's the same with Mark Webb. It's similar with Mark Webb and well, his others too. I mean... Yeah, I think there is a bit of a problem of people being over promoted too soon i mean mm. i do actually really like john wells's first spider-man film so maybe i don't know anything but you know you look at truck Tavaro, who feels very over-promoted and though i will defend jurassic world it's not like he then immediately fucked up in a massive way with the book of henry and you just then look at that and you wonder maybe he should have 
maybe just went into it too confident. Maybe Book mm. of Henry should be the second film. Yeah. And he should actually have to work for it rather than just being like, here's a mass the keys to a hugely important franchise. Some of the better directors came upon these things accidentally. Coppola never wanted to be Francis Ford Coppola. He never wanted to direct The Godfather. That was a diversion. But him and George always wanted to be independent, indi- independent yes, filmmakers yeah, yeah. entirely in control of supply, essentially supply and demand. It was never his ambition to make box office glory. It's the same with Friedkin. He didn't... Exorcist is the biggest grossing horror of all time still adjusted. Yeah. It's, it's astonishing to think how many Americans went to see that X-rated film in 1973, was it? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And and th- I don't know if we... There, there are some pictures that have a, a certain cachet, like Get Out was definitely one that people... that had word of mouth and where anybody aged between, say, 15 and 35 would have said, you need to see this film, you need to see this film in the cinema, this is a really good film to watch. But Exorcist had an entire population yeah exactly clamoring queuing around the block to be scared out of their wits it's uh yeah i guess there's just something to be said for the idea of it as a craft that you hone it's it's difficult to actually make the 70s comparison because it's not like lucas and spielberg invented the blockbuster Mm. maybe we could look at the 90s who made block it's like actually maybe emmerich's a good example of this or verhoeven verhoeven had made loads of films before he got given robocop like loads yeah um, and you know, uh, yeah, Emmerich's a good example because there is you can see it building up like he's doing genre pictures like Universal Soldier, but 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 relatively it's actually still I don't know what the budget is for that film. I'm going to guess twenty five thirty million. Yeah. Um, and it's and then it's not until and then you know he makes Stargate for fifty and then it's a nice small hit and then it's like cool we're going to gamble on giving you seventy five for yeah. um, Independence Day, but it's now that's not happening. And maybe the problem is actually is that sometimes they do pull off that actually. Spider-Man Homecoming is pretty solid. Um, but it strikes me that there's enough people making an absolute hash of it, <laughs> like Josh Trank. Mm. Um, and enough people are getting fired from or, or removed from projects like Gareth Edwards that did Rogue One. Yeah. Um, that it's like surely these people like Catherine Kennedy would save themselves a lot of hassle if you just got more journeyman directors in or people who are clearly good but have made, at least after making their <laughs> $2 million debut, made a couple of tens. Yeah. Do you, do you know what I mean? Rather like Kugler. Than... Kugler did something like that. I think that's a, that, that yeah. is a fair apprenticeship for me to make Fruitvale Station, then Creed. Yeah. Then Black Panther. Yeah. Yeah. And then Exec produced Creed 2 and they've got another one coming out. Um, there's at least one more film there as a, not sorry, not as a stopgap, but as a bridge. Yes. I don't know Because Creed, Creed is a good example. It's a really good example because it's a franchise film. Yeah. Admittedly, it's probably a, I'm guessing, $30, $40 million franchise film, but it's a big step up. He's got to handle, there's going to be a fan base, an older fan base, and a newer fan base. And, you know, he just gotta, he's got to do all that mental math whilst also saying, am I expressing something here? See, I think that's a good example wherein I haven't heard criticism of Creed. Of, uh, you would expect people to say, oh, Rocky's black now. What a load of bullshit. I didn't hear anybody say that because it's a really good film. I think it's really good. But I think it's also because it's tied smartly into the events of the original films. Rocky fans, white Rocky fans, will also love the character of Ruppolo Creed because he's part of that established mythology. So when they announce it, oh, it's going to be Sly as Rocky training Apollo's son, that's something that, you know, if you're just a Rocky fan in general, you're going to be up for that. I suppose, yeah, it's good good PR. Yeah, that's why I think like the... It was perhaps a mistake for Ghostbusters answer the call to be a full, a full on reboot. Mm. Do you know what I mean? 
maybe they would have got on with it a bit more if it was like these four women were picking up, you know, they found the... It's a bit like how in Jurassic World doesn't have that much connection in terms of characters and stuff to Jurassic Park. Mm. But there is that night... But it's established, oh, it's they've reopened the park and there's that bit when they find the old uh, truck and stuff. Yeah, the Explorer. And it just yeah. allows you, if you're a fan, to go, ah, oh, this exists within that same universe. That is, that is important to fans. Bringing back BD Wong as well is a, is a good example of a, a small role that whether or not people enjoy that role, it still shows an, an understanding of the, uh, if you could call it a trilogy, let's say the original film, it shows an understanding of the original film yeah. to bring that character actor back. Oh, it's like, if you watch like Doctor Who, like the sort of Eccleston Tennant years, they were full of this. It was clearly pitched to a new audience, but there'd be offhand references to things that if you were a new viewer, you'd think, oh, he's just referencing some random alien race he encountered. But if you were watching in 1975, you'd be like, oh no, the giant robot he mentions is the one from the Tom yeah. Baker thing. And it just gives fans that little twerk of uh, yeah. nostalgia and without that, alienating new people. That, and, yeah. I, and I wonder if like that's maybe just... Yeah. And that's adroitly deployed because that is not fan service. That's understanding and situating within a continuity. The problem I have when cultural commentators rail against what they perceive to be and what they call toxic fandom, right? Number one, it's the thing that I've already said, where it's really easy to gain a claim by being a nobody and attacking a somebody. Yeah. I don't like that. That's sniping. Um, that's being a snide. But the other thing is that... I'll apply this to football. I've been supporting Fulham all of my life. I've been going consistently for 22 years now. I mean more to that club than someone who turns up tomorrow. Quite literally tomorrow, because we're recording this on a Friday and we're at home tomorrow. <laughs> um, I mean more, and my uh, my money means more. My fandom does mean more because it's been generated over more That's than two thing. decades. You do have to keep the established fans happy, and it isn't fair. It just isn't fair to suggest that. Uh, so, for instance, with that Ghostbusters reboot, if there's any clamour for a new Ghostbusters film, it will be because of the people that enjoyed the first, enjoyed the second probably watch the real Ghostbusters as children on television. And they will not be enough to fully make it a hit, which is why it does have to somehow pitch... It's why this new one is basically doing... From what I know about it it's in the trailer, it looks like it's doing the Stranger Things version of Ghostbusters. And from yeah. what little we know of the plot... Now, there's a cynicism to that, but they're clearly pitching a modern audience. And from the plot, it does seem to be... The rumour is that it's looking like it's going to be like Spengler's children or something. Yeah. And and that's that's kind of what I'm talking about. Whatever we think of what they're trying to do there, my suspicion is fans are broadly going to be quite happy with that and then they might actually strike at gold with new people who come in. But yeah, but what I mean is <clears throat> it might be easier for people to understand if I apply it to a household because when you bring things down to an actual family unit or friendship unit, then I think that's an easy analogue, a relatable analogue. If you were to take home your now wife when she was your girlfriend, if you were to take home your new girlfriend, and she started calling the shots, first time she's ever... That's, that's a little but bit... But I had a real-world story about this. I know, that's why I kind of reference it. But that, I don't sorry, get, that wasn't... My, you, my wife did not do that. No, do, you wanna, do you want to get into the real-world story? Yeah. You can if you like. You, you might need to redact no, no. certain names. I'm trying to remember who it was. But someone just had a party where they catered for the vegan people, and they showed up, and there were... They went mental because this this is a very extreme example. I think I don't even think they could be in the same room as meat. Like mm. they were just a total narcissist dickhead, and they went mental. But but your example would be good. Like 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and so the point I'm making is that if we saw that within our family, we'd think that was a, a display of entitlement and narcissism. And uh, here we are, the McCaffreys, and the price of entry, that the bar for entry is fairly... Uh, this isn't a criticism, but it's fairly <laughs> low, you know. However, we do expect you to somewhat assimilate. You know, if you don't like courgette and we're having courgette, just leave it on the plate. Maybe have a couple. We're not going to be offended. And if you don't want to eat them, just leave them there. You don't have to make a... Yeah. You don't... You really don't have to make a fuss about how you couldn't possibly eat courgette because of something that happened seven years ago. Anyway, <laughs> and I do feel that this isn't properly understood when it comes to fandom. Um, new characters are introduced to Star Wars... And any relative criticism of that is disregarded as misogynist or racist or toxic fandom. Star Wars only exists as it does now because for 40 years, people have been into Star Wars. And I do sympathise to an extent, and I would have to speak one-to-one -one with these people, but I do sympathise to an extent with people who, with a, with a new set of films, we're essentially welcoming in a new generation of people who could be Star Wars fans, Right. And it isn't right for those people to say, I've just turned up, I've been into this thing for six months, where's my lesbian kiss? There's a couple of things I think about that with Star Wars. Number one, like, there isn't sex in the Star Wars universe. Yes. They don't have gay marriage. They barely have marriage. Um, nevertheless, I think it's fine if... Uh, and I just realised, as I said, there's a couple of people, a couple of ladies kissing at the end of the of the episode nine. Yeah. That's fine. I think that's really good. However, for people who just came to Star Wars five minutes ago to say... Why isn't John Boyega the lead? But it's arguments like that. No, hang on. Really this, this comes back me. to what I said earlier, which is those... if you have proper representation in films, it's not an issue. People aren't annoyed that Star Wars specifically does or hasn't historically had gay characters in. They're annoyed that most blockbusters don't. That's what they're annoyed about. And when they make a new one, it's an opportunity to, to address that. And, and then again, I'll go back. You know, Christopher Nolan, J.J. Abrams do not have to be the voice of uh, the gay world of gay yeah. earth gay twitter yeah, yeah exactly but if you had more gay people making films from their experience it, it just wouldn't be a problem and they wouldn't be making that criticism it always comes back to the same thing just give more give more women producer writer director roles give more people of colour sorry I know you hate that term actually <laughs> I'm not apologising that's a good example of where it is appropriate because you, it's a broad, you're using it as an umbrella term to describe actually quite a lot of ethnic minorities anyway you give them those positions, they make things about their experience, and it's fine. And then suddenly, I don't know, someone makes a gay superhero film, or they just start cropping up more. And then suddenly, people don't go to Star Wars expecting, you know, uh, there to be a gay character, because that they've been satiated elsewhere. The problem yeah. is, that they're not satiated elsewhere. Here's something that I thought was amusing in episode nine. I saw it just last Saturday. It seems like the Empire have gone woke. So to me, Star Wars <laughs> is always about... Uh, the Rebellion is comprised of everyone. All human races, all alien races, Bothin spies, Mon Calamari, Wookiee, droids, men and women, little people, really tall people, uh, people in masks, uh, puppet people, everybody. But only British character actors play well, the yeah, Empire. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, so I think it's entirely correct... Because um, I'm not much into the expanded universe of the 90s, but I understand that the Empire is essentially uh, a racialist organisation and is something of an analogue for whatever fascism you want to insert yeah. into it, right? Nevertheless, in episode nine, there were black people working for the Empire. 
There, there were black Imperials on <laughs> oh, the ships right. with Richard E. Grant. And there's like an old white lady that's there in a couple of films. Yeah, uh, and that's it's all right to have a lady potentially, but I thought, hold on, no, come on, come on, come on. I don't care how they're press ganging to it. We're, the, the, yeah, the, <laughs> this is a funny argument for me to make, but the Empire is meant to be racially pure. They're racist bastards. That's their position. Led by two pasty white boys. Yeah. There should, <laughs> there should be no brothers and sisters working on the fucking yeah. Imperial Star Destroyers. They should all be in the Rebellion. So I love. No, actually, that's a really good point. One of the things I love about the rebellion is that it is uh, diverse has taken on connotations now, but it's it's so diverse that, that you know, you've got Kelly Mutran, you've got John Bagea, you've got a Hispanic yeah. guy, Poe Dameron. He's and Hispanic, then, oh, right? Um, yeah, he's Guatemalan. Guatemalan. And then uh, a white, you, uh, and then a posh white chick. Again, all, all of the all of these two lesbians the, who are these, old. These conversations, these arguments, barely hold water when we're talking about the Star Wars universe because, like. Uh, where's Finn from? Is there a black planet? Is it like Star Trek, where it's a like? No, Star a, Wars is worse for that. Star Wars is the ice planet, desert planet. Yeah, yeah. Even though we have all those things on. Yeah, Earth. but remember in the original Star Trek, there was a planet of gangsters. Did you ever see that one? Probably. There was a planet of prohibition era gangsters. And Are you that, not thinking of the one they go back in time to prohibition? No, I think it's I think it's a planet of gangsters, <laughs> and um, you can check later on. But they, no, Star Trek did that several times as well. It was always like they go to another, they visit a planet, and that planet only has two races, yeah, uh, and they're different colours, or it only has one race, but some of them are blue and some of them yeah, are no, yellow. It's like I know, yeah, yeah. It was you know, or they visit a planet and it's only cowboys and Indians, yeah, and, and nothing else. It was always a little bit. There's a bit silly. in Star Trek Three where she scans the planet and goes, "Cool, they've got cats, they've got deserts, they've got forests," but it's striking because that's not usually how it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, so to, to try to it's just so I don't misrepresent the argument that I was making, um, there is intolerance in fandom to progress, certainly. Um, and progressivism, especially when it seems to be reactionary progressivism, just implanting people, um, it's difficult for you and I to understand what it was like when Lando was brought in for Empire. Yes. Um, because our under, our touchstone for it is essentially like, oh, George Lucas must have seen Shaft by now, and he puts in the black exploitation pimp, you know, bloke with a cape, and he owns <laughs> owns his own kingdom. It's that kind of thing. But it, you know, it might be the case, and we'd have to ask people. With, Truly, we'd have to ask people that were young in the 70s about whether when Star Wars came out, people said, why aren't there any black people? Because they probably did. They, yeah. they probably did at that point. Nevertheless, I do think, I do think it needs to be understood how uh, offensive it can be when someone for whom this thing has only meant something for a couple of minutes turns up and demands that changes be made. And I know about this because as a football fan, there's a constant tension between... People who've been going forever and what's commonly these days referred to as plastic. So people who started supporting Chelsea 15 years ago when they got big or Manchester City five or six years ago. I still know what you mean, but I think there were people who've always loved Star Wars, but just wished there was more, like we say, people of colour in it or maybe more gay people. And I know gay Star Trek fans uh, who've always been Star Trek fans and they've always loved it. And they're not what you're describing. They're pe- they are those people who are going, can I have gay people in Star Trek, please? And yeah. they're not Johnny Come Lately. Star Trek makes... Yeah, obviously, Star Trek makes sense. Star Wars, again... It's, and I know you're getting this because there's not much romance in it. There's not sexuality in Star Wars. It's, uh, what they did in Episode Nine. I don't want to... Yeah, but they do have romance. True, I, and I don't want to spend too long on this, but I thought that when I heard that there was a gay kiss in it, 
I thought, oh, it must be the uh, Tico's. Is it she called t- Rose yeah, Tico? I thought Tico. it must be Rose Tico. And instead, it was something in the background. I thought that's exactly the kind of thing that I'd like to see. Not for that reason, <laughs> but because it was treated as a normal uh, occurrence, yes. an entirely, um, an entirely common event. You know, Do- Doctor Who actually historically has been quite good at this since two thousand five. They have an explicitly gay or bisexual character in it, like Captain Jack. But is they that do, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But he is in Doctor Who first. But they do have characters like um, I just meant that he's called. Is that right? Yeah, he's Captain, Captain Jack the Torchwood. Man. Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And but they do just have characters like that. There's like a bit. What's that actress? It's not Leslie Mandel. Leslie Sharp. She's in an episode, and when the Doctor's just getting to know her, she says, "Oh yeah, you know." Turns out the wife was cheating on me, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And there's loads of little... And it's great, because it's just like, it's both... Doctor Who is both explicit. Uh, Eccleston's Doctor says of Captain Jack, he's a 51st century guy. And Rose says, are you saying that's what we do? We boldly go and then... And then Doctor's like, pretty much. <laughs> so that's like big, obvious, <laughs> yeah, yeah. hey, the future's gay, get on board. But then yeah. also just nice, the like, subtle stuff, like, oh yeah, that character was gay, because she casually referenced this. Um, and, and I think this is what's progressed to me, and I think it's it might be slightly different for you, but I don't think it is. So many of these things were so elementary to me, so young, that I resent Americans in 2020 making a big deal of something that was immaterial to me at a young age. Now, I've I've still been on, um, I, might, I may have mentioned this to you before, but I, I had to be told, I had to be, a friend of mine needed to sit me down and work through with me why I thought the age of consent for gay men should be 18, right? Because honestly, about, when was it? I was in my mid-twenties, and I said, yeah, it makes sense that it's 18, and my pal said, why? <laughs> and I said, well, because like, it's up the bum. Uh, and <laughs> God. That's, that's kind of invasive, you know, that seems like a decision you'd need to make when you're a bit older. And that's what I thought when I was 25, and I was wrong. Obviously, it was a mad heteronormative way to think yeah. of it. So I'm thinking, well, penises go in vaginas, but up your bum. I mean, like, oh, I, you know, that that's going to hurt the first <laughs> couple of times. Maybe that's a decision you need to leave until later. And then my <laughs> mate explained to me, and, and I'm, I'm so glad he actually, we were in a position where he could sit me down instead of saying, you're cancelled. Yeah, he said, yeah. you do realise it's about equality, Fletch. And I said, ah, oh, fuck yeah, we can't really have one that's one and one that's another because then... Yes. They'll be treated in different ways, so they do have to both be sixteen, uh, and that talk or me, both be eighteen, one of the two. Yeah, well, Americans have probably raised it all to twenty-one. Um, but that, this is what I mean, in as much as um, having said that, having said that, I was in some ways uh, ignorant—not really necessarily bigoted, but ignorant of the reality of what equality means when I was twenty-four, twenty-five years old. I thought that all of these things should uh, every element of difference should just be ex- not not even accepted but just yeah, be there look, and, yeah and so when in 2020 we're still having arguments about that's because people the, being offended by these things that's because the, the representation isn't there but now there is of course because you have them in discovery and they've sort of retroactively made sulu gay and all that kind of stuff but um, why why weren't there gay characters in? is it now hold on yeah why weren't there gay characters then don't know <laughs> it's on it, it is on isn't it I mean, my my my. Do you, do you reckon it might be because um, so if you think about race, race in America particularly becomes it's explosive. It's so explosive that it immediately sorry immediately wrong word. It's so explosive that it has to be addressed. You literally have black people in bondage, and then yeah. once you take them out of bondage, it's like no, you literally have people being hanged by kangaroo courts 
you know, kangaroo mob courts. Mm. So it's explosive and it has to be dressed immediately. Maybe the problem homosexuality has is, one, it's, um, I guess it's less of the population. There's less gay people than black people in America. Yeah. Well, there is yeah. now, but I guess it would be true back then as well. Yeah. That, and it's essentially something that's happening behind closed doors anyway. Whereas racism is literally from the street. There's literally a sign that says, whites only. And maybe that's why. So it's forced into consciousness. And then Gene Roddenberry's like, well, you know, can't be having this. Let's have your hero and Kirk make out on screen. Whereas because the gay thing isn't in your face as much, especially back then. It just never occurs to him to be like, oh, this is wrong. Let's have Sulu and McCoy have a kiss. It might be... I mean, that's interesting. It might be that... And spitballing. I reckon it's because the American approach to sexuality is so ridiculously puritanical. Could that be it? In America... And we're speaking specifically about America. Worst country in the fucking world. You said earlier Western culture is better than non-Western culture. No, America is the worst Western nation (laughs) functioning today. We can can learn very little from it other than as a cautionary tale. And I know when I rail against America... We are not light years ahead. We are significantly more progressive than they are, meaningfully, but not light years. Um, I was in San Francisco when I was studying there in 2003-04, and that was when I first learned about Harvey Milk. One of our induction um, activities was to go to uh, the Castro, which I didn't know about. That I didn't even know the Simpsons joke when... Um, you remember when Fidel Castro's in it and he says, uh, the Americans, don't, they don't mind me so bad. They even named a street in San Francisco after me. It's full of what? <laughs> right, so uh, we were there in the Castro and that's when our tutor told us about Harvey Milk getting shot to death and George Moscone being shot to death by Dan White. And I thought, this is fucking, this is 25 years ago. Yeah. Is, my parents were adults when this happened and a man but was you... killed because he was gay. I couldn't believe it. This is, it would be fair of me to say about you that you're... <laughs> You carry over a, yeah, I got the Kings of Leon's first EP over to your liberal politics. Yeah. And is that not facile? I know, possibly. It's a bit yeah. like, a bit like how, um, you know, you know that annoying thing that conservatives, the small C, do when they're like, I've had to accept that gay is, homosexuality is fine because yeah, yeah. my daughter's come out and it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, it is good for the cause. Okay, that's and I have to begrudgingly accept oh, see, that yeah. it's good for the cause, yeah. um, because they're on board and yeah. But it still annoys me that it taps into that thing conservatives do, where they only give a shit if it's to do with their family. Yeah, and but I still I have to let go of that and go. It's fine. It's fine. You know they're on board now, and other Republicans and conservatives might see that maybe being up gay is okay. And then this is what I'm saying about you. Like I know you have legitimate issues that I agree with, with some of the way leftism is expressed today, but it does sometimes come across from you, like you're being like, I was there first, why are you all taking ages? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, I think that's a fair way to put it, probably. Right. I watched, first time I watched Hairspray, I was like nine or ten years old. Uh, and I don't even remember there being a conversation about it. But this is the thing, like, I, I get annoyed by parents who feel after shield and... Um, children from stuff it's like those fucking idiots that ring in the BBC to whinge about like that uh, weather yeah. girl who's got it's like what is <laughs> your, so, kids, sorry, your kids are going to have a problem with it because you're shielding them from it to say to she see. was probably either born with no arm or she was in an accident and but what she's yeah, demonstrating yeah. is you can carry on and be a professional and have a successful career regardless of that that's what you say I, <clears throat> I mean I'm a bit on sex and I'm not sure what, what my line would be with my kids because I am concerned that like 
they 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 literally not bio, they might literally be not ready to biologically understand what sex is. Yeah. So I'm a bit unsure if I should just be what I want to be, which is just the like, yeah, the guy puts his penis in a vagina and that's a because I then just worry they'll rub themselves on some of the <laughs> That's exactly how I found out about it, right? My parents never sat me down with any of that. I figured it all out through cinema and television, but the first time I ever heard the words was LA Law. Um when I was if I was ever up as late as nine o'clock, that's when my mum and my dad had a cup of coffee, so I got coffee as well. I told that to thought the other day. She thought it was outrageous. Well, you were a kid drinking coffee. Yes, I'm seven or eight years old. That is weird. Yeah, I, I didn't realise it was odd. <laughs> She's right. <laughs> and I do remember watching an episode of LA Law. It was a rape case, and the lady says he put his penis in my vagina. It was there that I learned that's what those those things are. That's my, what the my words brother are. taught me. Told me, but I remember when he told me. There was a reluctance to him telling me that suggested my mum, post-divorce, had said to him, can you just go and tell Aiden oh, Matty, yeah, Aiden yeah. Matty about sex? Yeah. And he was like, oh, I don't want to do this. But it's probably better that I heard from him than my dad. I don't know if you... Right, so I don't think we needed to be told. I think now, uh, in 2020, parents need to be well ahead of the game because... Of porn. Yeah, because... Internet porn. We, we were talking about this the other day, weren't, you? weren't we? And I can even show you the... Um, I've got Asian Babes 5 over there. You remember at the... At the oh, you found that some was, porn. Yeah, that wasn't bullshit. Yeah, I, re- <laughs> I really did find pornography. Um, I was. I asked in a stand-up gig of mine, who's dis- discovered porn in a bush? Fletch hasn't, but he decided to announce that he had found some porn, not in a bush. <laughs> it, was, it was awkward because I didn't want to... Even though I know you're um, fairly sophisticated with crowd work and you're experienced... What you didn't need was someone bringing up uh, an archaic <laughs> physical medium because it would. Der- I was worried it would derail things, and I knew that anybody who was there would say, a "Fucking VHS, what?" <laughs> so I needed to be really furtive about it. But yeah, that did happen. If I was a better comedian, I would have. That's I would have picked up on that and gone. The oh. VHS is the weird thing, mate. Not the yeah, fact that yeah. you found <laughs> porn. Yeah, yeah. But stay away from this. Perm. I'm not very quick-witted. <laughs> I sometimes I'm lucky. Uh, the best bit of crowd work was someone. I said, what are you doing? And they said, I'm a student. And said, what are you studying as part of your PhD? And they went, I'm actually studying the effects of cocaine. And I straight off the bat went, I bet you... No, actually, I hadn't mentioned PhD by this point. And my response was, I bet you completed your PhD in record time. <laughs> but I'm not, yeah, usually, right. I'm not usually that quick-witted. But, um, I admire yeah. comedians who just have it there ready to go. Anyway. Um, Can we please talk about films like Fucking hell, yeah, yeah. Hour and 20. That's <laughs> fucking subject. <laughs> We're not going to get to watch that. Um, we're not going to get to watch the. Thing oh yet. yeah, yeah. We've we've got to burn through this then. So the reason that I had Aiden over is because he's leaving us soon. Um, you're off to Leeds, and you know I, I, we haven't made enough of a deal about that, and I suppose that's just because we're adult and we've all moved four times. But it's a big thing. You leave in London after how many years? Twelve years. So it's you've been here a third of your life. Yeah, it's not not nothing, and I do genuinely think I'm Londonified. I think I'm f- a fully. As I say in my show, you know, woke millennial, cancel culture, vulture, soy boy, snowflake apologist, liberal, member of the metropolitan elite. That's just, I fully am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm not really, because I'm not a cancel culture vulture, but, but you know what I mean? I am, yeah. I'm very London. I feel it when I go out of London as well. It's like, yeah. huh, oh, man, you it's a do, different yeah. world out there. <laughs> so um, you're off to Leeds. I'm off to Leeds, starting a new job in three weeks' time. Uh, and yeah, it is sad. It is sad to move out. I do love London. I love the people I've met here. But there comes a time when you've got to... I don't, you don't have to move out of London, but just based on what my wife and I want, we do have to move out. Yeah, you do. This is it. It's no longer... Um, it's not... It's not even what it was in the 90s. Uh, 
it's so difficult. Number one, it's so difficult to raise a family in London. Why? No, money. Oh, yeah. Number two, though, as we said at the beginning, it's relatively dangerous for a very young person. I don't think it's dangerous for a 25-year-old or 35-year-old. I'm not constantly in fear of um, I'm not constantly in fear of being jacked or of burglaries, but I wouldn't want to have a 12-year-old son or a 15-year-old son taking pu- uh, London public transport every day. I know that they get robbed, and mm. I know that being robbed is one thing, but you know, like getting your ass whooped is another. Um, it's a tough city, and it's I think it's only getting tougher. It obviously it's nothing like it was in the 50s, but I think after a high point of maybe 30 years ago. It's now getting slowly on its way to becoming as tough as it was in the 50s or 60s. I don't subscribe to that. I think there's a lot of... I can't deny there's a rising problem with knife crime. But, you know. Um, don't, don't forget the air quality as well. I know we haven't got the oh, sorry, yeah. of the 50s, but it, it's beginning to sound like, um, you know, when you read uh, Victorian novels and people move south for the air, like um, Doc Holliday did with Wyatt Earp. Yeah. It's no longer a safe, a safe environment for a child to... Uh, physically grow up and and develop with this air quality. Well, yeah, sorry, the air quality, totally right. And like my, my, my wife's from Australia, Sydney, and she says when she moved to London, she'll cough up just black shit. Just she'll sneeze and it'll be black. Now, I don't right. get why that happens with her and not me. I knew a girl from. But I've also not, you know, as I've said, I've got like skin mild skin problems. I've got skin cancer, but I have some skin irritants. And I have to really watch what I eat. But I have noticed when I'm outside of London, it's not as bad. The symptoms just aren't as bad. Yeah. So although it's diet related, if the air is toxic, it must be affecting me. We've got 12 million germ carriers here as well. Yeah. And it's just anyway. Um, so Aiden's on his way in a few weeks' time, and I'm sure that he'll be back in... I will make sure he comes back to London a couple of times, and we'll also be doing some remote podcasting. But uh, we needed to take one last opportunity to bring him into the studio, into um, OSS Ealing. So we did this a year ago. We discussed the films that were coming out. Yeah. Some of those films... I remember we talked about uh, Once Upon a Time, Hollywood was an obvious one. But I remember a year ago saying, oh, Sam Mendes has got 1917, and we were speculating what it could be. Yeah. Because we had no idea. And we title. mentioned Knives Out as well, which, yes. which proved to be wonderful. Yeah. Um, so we, uh, we want to preview 2020. Okay. So it was interesting this year because there were big people, notable people, like Scorsese, like Tarantino, like Ryan Johnson, releasing high-profile stuff. Um, you pushed him into the pantheon there. I did, <laughs> I, I did, yeah. But yeah, you're right, there were, yeah. We have, this is in March, Mulan, the new live-action remake of that. Trailers have been all right. Yeah. Um, be interesting to see if that's good. Because what I want from that is <laughs> big action, impressive armies colliding. And yeah, like that Matt Damon picture, The Great Wall. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. essentially what, as someone who's not invested in that story, hasn't even seen the original, that's what would make me go. And I watched the trailer and I was like, huh, you're not giving anything for me here. I know it's not all about me, but the fact is, if you're going to make a $100 million film like that, you probably are going to need me to come on board um, yeah. and yeah. see it. So, you know, it's a bit like, it's like Captain Marvel and uh, Wonder Woman, you know, men will go and see that. You've got to give them something that men like, and they like super swish action and blockbuster set pieces. Do you want to, do you want to go into that? We can go into it, because I don't think we've done it properly. <laughs> okay, right. Let's, let's give it a couple of minutes. Um, <laughs> it's my opinion, and Aidan knows this already, but it's my opinion that at some point during the production process of 
Oh no, let's not go into this. You don't want it. Oh, okay, you don't <laughs> want to go into it. That's all right. That's all right then. Um, no, no, because actually, what, I know what you're about to say has got nothing to do with what I've just said. The fact is, there are a bunch of guys who didn't who saw that and were like, "Why the hell are they making Ghostbusters with women?" But then that links back to what we were speaking about earlier, which I think is that they they didn't see enough interaction and patronage of the original films. It's an interesting one with Ghostbusters because it's not a franchise; it's a property. It's a property they're trying to turn into. There's, there's only four things. There's two films and two animated series. And the second animated series, uh, I didn't interact with that. And it wasn't sufficiently similar to the you know, the classic lineup of the f- five, six of them. It's funny to think that Ghostbusters has fandom. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's not like Star Wars where there's a no. lot of stuff to buy into. So, I mean, so much. In addition to, even if you go and buy everything before the prequels, there's still the three pictures, Alpha Endor and Ewok Caravan of Courage. There's the Droid series, the Ewok series, so many books, so many video games. I mean, Ghostbusters is essentially Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, it's an yeah. S- it's an SNL yeah. Yeah, you're right. guy, yeah. or multiple guys in this case, making a big blockbuster comedy. And so, um, yeah, I suppose that's a really good analogue because it would be interesting to think, like, if they made Beverly Hills Cop 4 and they cast... Uh, is Tiffany Haddish black? Yes. I don't really know much about her. If they cast Tiffany Haddish as um, Alexa Foley. Oh, yeah, there you go. It works quite well, doesn't it? As, a, as Alexa Foley. Would, uh, would the internet shit its pants? Would uh, I don't know. I, it, it doesn't have... I was uh, Yeah, basically, I was surprised that Ghostbusters had that fandom. I know it was a colossal film. However, it was only as big as... About as big as Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. In terms of box office. And it had one fewer sequels. And but maybe it's because you watch Beverly, you watch Ghostbusters when you're young, so actually it has that Back to the Future thing of being it's a great film when you're a kid, and then you watch it as an adult and you realise there's an extra dimensions to it that, that went over your head. Yeah. So you spend a lot of your life watching. Because Beverly Hills Cop is pitched older right from the start. I know we watched it when we were kids, but a lot of people might not necessarily. That's, ex- that's exactly why I'm a poor barometer for many of these <laughs> arguments because I watched not everything. As I said, I only saw Highlander last week. I didn't see Predator until I was in my twenties. But many of these films I watched when I was as young as seven or eight. And yeah, I've, I've been literally, in some cases, I've been waiting a decade for people to catch up so I can start fucking talking about Martin Brest, you know, because yeah. I had no friends who'd seen Midnight Run. It was a very lonely existence <laughs> in some ways. But let's get back to what else we've got coming up. So Melania, that might could be interesting. Uh, there's the new Bond film that's coming out. That is that Carrie fucking out? Fucking out? can't really say his name. Yeah, him. Did True Detective. Yeah. I, I mean, now, yeah. I'm sort of not as invested in that franchise that I necessarily care what happens to Bond. But at the same time, I am kind of interested to see what he does with a big blockbuster with some money behind him. Because he yeah. does do great set pieces. And, you know, I, I and his ambitious stuff, like lots, there's that lovely one-take bit where they go, they go into the project in True Detective. Yeah, yeah. It's great. So... Yeah, it is. It's had a troubled production history. My suspicion is that it's going to be quite good and it will have some phenomenal set pieces and ambitious stuff and we'll all be sort of happy with it. (laughs) That's my prediction. Do you know who's shooting it? Oh, no, I don't. Let's find out quickly. Because the best parts of the last couple with Mendes was was Deakins and then, uh, wasn't it, did Hoyt Van Hoytema do the other one? It's being shot by Linus Sandgren, who's done Joy, La La Land, First Man... And American Bullshit. Oh, so he's worked with David O. Russell a couple of times. But I don't know too much about him. Oh, Promised Land, the completely overlooked Gus Van Sant picture. Uh, anyway, so that could be good. Uh, Black Widow's out on May the 1st. Uh, I'm, I'm not loving the trailers on that, personally. 
it seems like it'd be quite good. Uh, what's that David guy who's in Stranger Things? Harbour. He's in it, and he looks like he might be quite funny in it. So I suspect right. it'll be a bit like Captain Marvel in that. It's quite good. There's too much reliance on bad CGI. There's some nice comic support from Harbour, just like there was nice comic support from Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. But I don't know. I'm speculating what my opinion will be here. I can't believe you said earlier he's only been nominated for one Academy Award. Jackson. Yeah, Pulp Fiction. It's... So since Pulp Fiction, no nominations. And none before. Well, I thought he was nominated for Jungle Food. Wasn't. That's amazing. I think he. I think that was one of those things where he got a lot of awards heat, but didn't quite. Because that's not. Just, I don't think he does consistently great work. However, every time he sets out to do great work, he usually does. You yes. know. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. he's not looking to win anything with Nick Fury in that film, The Man, with Eugene Levy or Fifty First State, but. Most of the time he's working with Spike Lee or Quentin Tarantino. It's really good. Yeah, really good. Wonder Woman 1984? Oh, yeah. I'll go and see that. What, 84? Yeah, partly. Number one, I didn't avoid Wonder Woman. Um, I just didn't see it, and I'm not quite it sure It avoided why. you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm interested to see any evocation of 1984, and hopefully it will be there will be some honesty to it rather than... I mean, the Stranger Things thing... I'm not down with that. It's the kind of thing that people, like people who don't really know me would say, oh, you'd love that. <laughs> no, I wouldn't because I'm not about a retread for a retread's sake. Yeah, I mean, loads of people love it. I just don't, yeah, I, I don't think, Stranger Things is exceptionally well produced and exceptionally well cast and the writing's literally never impressed me. <laughs> and I don't yeah, love yeah. the Goonies enough, I don't love the Goonies at all to care that much that I have to have that kind of thing. I really like Super 8. I don't think it's brilliant, but it's a nice little nostalgia piece. It's pretty solid. I just feel like Abrams did it in two hours. I don't know why I have to spend 30 <laughs> with yeah. this. But it's informing everything now. Mm. You know, you see it was a mass huge. And they basically went, let's do a Stranger Things version of this. Um, and that's got Finn Wolfhard, hasn't it? it yeah, kid? it's got one of the same kids in yeah, it. And, then he's and, this Ghost Go- and Ghostbusters, yeah. which we'll get to in a moment. Same thing. They're basically on the new Ghostbusters film, not answer the call, the new one that's coming out. Uh, is it Ghostbusters Afterlife? That the, the the feel of the trailer is we're doing the Stranger Things version of this, and it, although I'm not massively into that, I've got a feeling it's going to work. <laughs> like it's just going to be it again, and it's going to take yeah. make make the mega books. Uh, so the week after Wonder Woman 1984, we have Candyman, a reboot written and produced by Jordan Peele. Oh, it's written as well. Yeah, but who's directing? We went through this earlier. Oh, uh, I can't remember her name. It's a lady oh, yeah. who uh, worked on Top Boy. The acclaimed drama series. Top Boy was really good. Yeah, so maybe that's going to be solid. Yeah. Good credentials. Cast seems to be unknown to us. We don't seem to recognise the names. Yeah, they must be in television. But again, Candyman's a great example. That is, that's, that's a property, but it's not a franchise. I think there was... Right, so there's Candyman 2, Farewell to the Flesh. There might be a third that I don't <laughs> know about. But it's something I was going to mention is that I'm so pleased that those three big Spielberg properties haven't been touched. Goonies, Back to the Future and Gremlins. Yeah. Seem to be ring fenced. Well, Zemeckis, Zemeckis himself is ring fenced back. Ring fenced I'm so back pleased that he has. But when he dies, there, the jig will be up. <laughs> but, the, but I actually Sorry. don't think. But, but this is the interesting thing. I'm not sure if it would work now because I don't think there's enough cultural difference. I think between people who were teenagers in the '60s and now, uh, technology is changing the way we interact and the way we have sex. <laughs> yeah. But broadly speaking, teenagers then. They listen to pop music and watch films, and I guess that's what we do now. So again, maybe like Vine and God, that's a dated reference, and TikTok. 
might might change the attention span of. of oh, people. I see. Because yeah, so what what you mean is that when he goes back to the fifties, it is interacting with the very first teenagers, isn't he? Uh, kind of. Or, that was the first or, or, or it, It's aesthetically, culture is different enough that you can make some hay with that. Yeah. And, and then part of the joke is that actually he assumes that his mum, his mum says at the beginning, oh, well, I was never in cars with boys. Yeah. So he, sh- he assumes his mum was some like 50s woman who didn't do that. And it turned out she was lying. And his mum drinks liquor, steals it from the cabinet and does park in park, yeah. sorry, sit in parked cars with boys. So that's the thing. Whereas now, I'm not sure you couldn't do that now because it's like we all just assume our parents in the kids now would just assume their parents probably were fucking and stuff and yeah, drinking. Yeah. And so I'm not sure if there's enough. It's a bit like how I was thinking about Quantum Leap, and people often say, "Why haven't they redone Quantum Leap?" And Quantum Leap was interesting because the 50 years of American history leading up to it were rich and dramatic enough that actually you could do lots of stuff with it. You know, you could yeah. have him leap into the deep south and have an episode of dealing with racism you could have him leap into the body of a hippie who you know dies at some <laughs> uh kent state for yeah exactly yeah. you could uh maybe have an aids episode i don't know if they actually did i'm sort of spitballing now you could have a disco episode do you yeah, know what i mean yeah. you could have a nam episode there's loads of stuff you could do with that and i was thinking if you went 50 years back from now would it be dramatic enough the fact that we're stuck in an 80s nostalgia cycle that just doesn't seem to ever be ending in the way that the 70s nostalgia wave we had in the 90s and the 50s nostalgia wave we had in the 70s they ended this one isn't and i wonder again is it because we're not culturally different enough from the people that were alive then actually for it to for us to divorce ourselves from it it might be that culture's been limited because i I keep wondering what happens when we have the uh garage rock post-punk new wave revival for the second time. So we had it at the end of the 70s. Its revival was 20 years ago. You mean the strokes? Yeah, if it revives again in five years, we will be on the third iteration of the band Television and Talking Heads. (laughs) And the same with the fashion. But But those things, when they come back, though, they never... The the thing about uh, that new wave stuff, that Gang of Four Talking Heads stuff, is that wasn't the big music of the time. Uh, yeah, that's very true. And that's the yeah. thing, what the bands, what a cool new band like The Strokes would do 20 years ago, is their influences are things that were actually slightly alternative 20 years ago. So yeah, there is a retro element to it, but it's not as obvious as going, oh yeah, we're going to be like Duran Duran now. Yeah. And actually those Duran Duran influences that do filter through is like The Killers doing Mr. Brightside, where it's an indie band who are going, hey, that synthesizer sound from you know, early electro new wave is actually quite cool, isn't it? Yeah. So it gets incorporated into a guitar sound. So whatever the next 20 years ago thing will be, it won't be what you expect. It will be something that was, I guess, a thing in the early noughties, but not necessarily the killers and Franz Ferdinand all over again. I don't know, maybe it'll be like stuff like Pavement. Maybe that influenced... Yeah, I'm well up for that. And Neutral Milk Hotel. Maybe all that stuff will suddenly become (laughs) uh, huge. I could do Pavement again. So what other films have we got coming up? King of Staten Island, which looks like a Pete... Oh, God, what's that young guy who dates hot pop stars, who's a comedian? Looks a bit weird. Oh, yeah, the new Judd Patel. Um, Pete <laughs> Davison. Yeah, yeah, that's a film with him. Um, I think it's a stand-up documentary thing, from what I understand. No, it's, isn't it? I thought it was uh, going to be like Trainwreck, where he, he plays a role. Oh, actually, maybe right. Oh, yeah, sorry, it's a semi-autobiographical semi-autobiographical comedy drama about Davison growing up in Staten Island, including losing his father in 9-11 and entering the world of stand comedy. Ah, that could be interesting, actually. Oh, that's just his life. Well, yeah, but that's what you have to do, isn't it? 
I don't know if you have to go so autobiographical. <laughs> Buy me. Other comics will say he's been dining out on this as his one thing for a very long time. In fact, there was a comic who lied about <gasps> their old man being a firefighter and dying. Oh. The, uh, the, real, the real thing is um, how many people are getting cancer from breathing in all that yes. shit for several months. This was John uh, Stewart's pet cause for 10 years. It fucking should be as yeah. well. It's, it's outrageous. And Republicans, who should usually venerate heroes like that, they were the one blocking the medical, uh, you know, bills that oh. would help get them covered. It's appalling. And yeah. I think they may have now passed it, but it took John Stewart and other people and them really kind of hammering home on it hard. Yeah. To, it's appalling. Um, Pixar Soul. Uh, that's I don't know, that's like set in New Orleans. Has got something to do with jazz. That's all. Oh, I know. far out. Yeah. Yeah. What was that one they did with the kid in Mexico? Uh, Coco. It was really good. Yeah, yeah that looked fun. I, again, I like cultural specificity. Yeah. I'm interested in it. Also coming out that weekend, which I'm very chuffed about, Top Gun Maverick. Oh, yeah. Yes, please. That's Kaczynski, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. Now, Kaczynski, I'm not massively wild about as a director, but I'm a big Tom Cruise apologist. Uh, He works hard. Apparently, he's learned how to fly planes for this one. Or at least he at least is in planes that are being flown about. Uh, That sounds superficial, but I I got really into Top Gun late in life. Never really appreciated it. But post-Dunkirk, you go back to that, and it's like, huh, a lot of real aerial combat photography in this. You know, in a, in a digital age where Marvel can't even be bothered to film a car driving down a street, yeah, they just yeah. do it in computers. A film like Top Gun, which has many flaws, you know, there's no subtext. <laughs> We've discussed yeah, this yeah. before. It, it just looks impressive. You know, even just filming some... St- you know, I know at the time, it, a lot of that stuff would have seemed hack and obvious, like the fact that a lot of Bruckheimer films film things at sunset because of that orange-amber glow just makes things look cool. But now, again, in a digital age, you appreciate that a bit more. Actually, yeah, that, yeah. you know, they were waiting until 6.30pm to put the camera on the top of that aircraft carrier and film that. And it's just impressive. And it's just dated well, because unlike other films from the 80s, they all have smart uniforms and crew cuts. <laughs> oh, yeah, so, it doesn't yeah, actually, right. so it doesn't actually look like, because by nature of the setting, it doesn't really look... Like the eighties, yeah. the only the only clue about when that film was released is the fact that the soundtrack is very eighties. It's all synth pop stuff like uh, Berlin Take My Breath Away and you know fifties and sixties uh, rock and roll nostalgia. Like and also eighty six was a, a big year for films about the military or military hardware in some form, and they take different forms. Obviously, Platoon is a cynical film, but in America, I think it was the highest grossing film that year. It's actually a cynical take on Vietnam. Then at the same time, culture's going, can we just have something that, can we just see our boys flying planes and looking cool now yeah. without that cynicism? And then Aliens, which is your more escapist version of it, which is just, let's just see some macho people and Sigourney Weaver firing big guns at Aliens in space. It's an interesting year for, for the military that cinema. That's a really interesting set, yeah. So what, what else we got? Next film is one, if I could only see one film next year... And I've already seen 10 minutes of it. Oh, yeah, you have, yeah. Tenet, mm. the new Christopher Nolan. Again, we were talking, because I'm a big apologist for J.J. Abrams, but I've had to concede <laughs> <laughs> that he has messed up, finally, with The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. But it's fine, because directors fuck up. And some of our favourite directors, Scorsese, you know, Spielberg, they've, they've messed up. Zemeckis yeah. has messed up. He's been doing it for 10 years now. You know, they mess. it's fine. Yeah. I'm sure he'll get his mojo back. And I'm waiting for it to happen with Tenor. I know he's made The Dark Knight Rises. 
I'm not willing to count it as. Oh, a... so you're expecting that Tenet could be a full? No, tenet. no, no. I'm not. I'm not at all. But I'm just saying it hasn't happened yet. It's got to happen eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if he continues to attempt to do, if he does more Dunkirk's where he really thinks about the form and like yeah. challenges the form, I guess with Tenet. It doesn't look like it's going to be that kind of film. It essentially looks a bit like it's going to be Inception, a yeah. thriller, maybe heist-style thing that plays with time in some way. Yeah. It's not necessarily a bad thing. We know little about it. Maybe some extra element, some twist that he's thought of. That'll do it. Um, yeah. Just to clarify what I was saying earlier, I guess you could call Dark Knight Rises his failure in some way, but I don't think it's a full failure. Mm. And I think it's a testament to his skill that it's pretty damn watchable, even despite all its narrative flaws. Yeah. Um, I've seen 10 minutes of it because they showed 10 oh, minutes yeah. on IMAX before. And it does look great. I was confused by it because obviously it wasn't really contextualizing certain science fiction plot elements that were in it. But it look, looked fantastic from a purely aesthetic viewpoint. And that's Van Hoytema, isn't it? I think so. Hey, I think I'll tell you who it's not going to be, fascinatingly. Zimmer's not involved. Oh, Ludwig Göransson. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? You just did a Sam Mendes. You went, huh? He's gone that way. The next thing's a massive thing. Trailer hit this week. French Dispatch. Sound July. Oh yeah, I saw the trailer. I, I I saw the trailer, and my uh, initial reaction, my my immediate response was, "How is he allowed to keep doing this? This one thing with <laughs> every actor imaginable." Yeah. And I do almost love it. I suppose. I think that he he spent a long time without progressing and then Budapest Hotel was a definite progression as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, because I thought for a, a few films he was treading water. And so, yeah, I'd say Grand Budapest Hotel is up there in his top three. And that's that's a really good thing to be able to say of a director who's now 25 years into his career. Um, well, 20, but go on. No, Bottle Rocket. Wait, oh, you're right, actually. It is yeah. Bottle I forgot about that. Bottle Rocket was 96. Whoa, 25 years of... Anderson. Yeah, same with PT. Same. I mean, Dick Linklater has been doing it for. 30 and he's not years. someone I retroactively discovered. I saw Rushmore in cinema. God, that's scary. Did you? Yeah. Lucky. I saw Rushmore. Didn't see. I actually only watched Bottle Rocket for the first time, mm. like a few years ago. Yeah. But I was there for Rushmore. Well done. Oh man. <laughs> so at the Hyde Park Picture House in Leeds, which was where my formative cinema that I would go to for interesting shit. Grew up in Harrogate, but my elder brother, he, he sort of helped me with my film because he wanted to watch interesting films and he knew yeah. I knew what they were going to be. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah so yeah. he'd be, he just would literally just drive me every week or two to Leeds uh, to watch a film with the Hyde Park. And sometimes we watched some random, turned out to be shit because we didn't know much about it. But there's just loads of weird stuff from that era that I watched at cinema, like Wishmore and Buffalo 66. Oh, far out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Man, he was a flash in the pan, but he's pretty good, Vincent Gallo. Literally, because you saw his cock in one film. Morbius, this is the new... This is Sony's, like, we have the rights to Spider-Man villains, so we're going to try and make films out of them. Yeah. Which seems like a weird idea, but uh, that one with Tom Hardy was massive. Venom was incalculably successful. Yeah, I know. And, uh, like, no critic I know liked it. And no. Apparently, but audiences dug it. There's hunger for that character. There must be imprinted in it some metaphor that Chinese people can apply to their own situation for that film to be as successful as it was and as successful as it was in particularly China. And I don't know what that metaphor is. Well, I haven't seen it. Bill and Ted face the music. I really hope that's fun. Oh, yeah, Dean Pariso. Yeah, I really yeah. hope that's fun. Because... Those those two films. I mean, they're flawed, but they're pretty great, aren't they? And, and it'll be just nice seeing... Because Reeves is interesting because he's been 
rightfully criticised for being quite wooden a lot of the time. Yeah. But at the same time, he's now at a point where he has like four like um, iconic action roles under his belt. Do you know what I mean? So Speed, Matrix, John Wick. And I guess Point Break. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd, yeah definitely. And yeah, and he, but he's sort of not... If you, He is quite funny. He does have some comic tops in Bill and Ted. Maybe it's just that's the yeah. one... Maybe that's the one comic thing he can do, but still, it's nice to... It will be nice to see him go back to that. I have a lot of time for Reeves because throughout the 90s, he tried things. He tried to um, broaden his range. He did Dracula with Coppola, worked with Bertolucci. He has done a film with Raimi. Oh, yeah, The Gift is fine. Yeah. He already played a baddie and he's, he's fine in that. He did a number of films where he worked with interesting directors, trying to do interesting stuff. I think what he found was his own limitations. Absolutely. But the other thing is that um, he... Clearly, is fantastic to work with. Great on set, real professional. You only hear positive or, things about him. Yeah, I heard something that he gave loads of his money that he made from the Matrix sequels to the VFX guys. Yeah, I heard that one too. Because he was like, "You're not earning enough money." Yeah, he's he's a, a really, and you guys are part, merely the main reason these have been hit. He's a generous, lovely fellow, and, um, and he I, has a bit of that Tom Cruise thing of, "I'm going to make sure I'm up to speed for this." Yeah. Like that, that fame, that that video that went viral of him, like. On an assault course, taking out targets and just acing it because oh, he, really? he was because he was because he was trying to get in. Uh, he was trying to do John Wick, but do it properly. He learned a, gr- a lot of great stuff for Matrix, and I'm at a point now where I, I understand acting and actors a bit better, and I don't expect everyone have to have terrific range, and most people don't. Yeah. And if Keanu Reeves can only do a couple of things well, then that's fine. Yeah. And it's really it's up to directors to use him properly. Exactly. We have uh, the King's Man. Do you know what this is? You can figure it out from the title. It's it's a prequel to The Kingsman. Oh, set in uh, yeah, the, the Victor- turn of the last century, yeah, like, yeah, Victorian or Georgian. Yeah. I think it must no, it must be Georgian because it's the King's Man. So it's oh, how sorry, that got yeah. set up. Obviously, yeah. I don't definition. think we know much about the plot, but it sounds like it originated with them literally protecting the king, and that's where the thing comes from. I think that has potential to be interesting. I quite like Matthew Vaughan. I quite like, he's quite mad. He sort of goes for it. Yeah, yeah. I don't love all of his films, but they're sort of committed to their own insanity. We talked through the day about, I said, I like that bit in that film where <laughs> the King's speech does all those stabs. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I mean, that is an astonishing sequence. And I kind of like the idea of seeing something like that, but done as a sort of period thing. It presumably would end up looking like a Guy Ritchie Sherlock film, right? Like a sort yeah. of period yeah. blockbuster action thing. With, like, insane camera choreography slash action. To an extent, I mean, we are lucky, bearing in mind that Aidan and I go back to the 90s. I'll put it to you like this. If in, if in our cinematic cineast infancy, we'd been told that Guy Ritchie and Matthew Vaughan, two British directors, are nowhere near the best British action directors working in Hollywood in 20 years from now, Got an embarrassment of riches. Now I know neither of them are Ridley Scott or Tony Scott. Yeah. But they're not. They're not bad. And they're Rich is fine, and Matt Vaughan's good. Yeah. And they're nowhere near the best. And I, yeah, I'm really pleased with that. Really, I'm pleased that like Vaughan, for instance, um, he was on X Men Three. And he does do his own thing. Down. He does yeah. his own thing. Kick ass. He. I'm. I'm fairly sure they're both upper class. And they're very well connected. And at least one of them is married to one of the most famous supermodels over the last 25 years. Yeah. So the other one was married to the most famous pop star. Exactly. So we can't forget they're well connected. But he's using that well. Oh, he yeah. knew a studio wouldn't let him make kick-ass the way he did. So he just got all of his millionaire friends and said, give me 40 million for this. 
and I'll so make it on my own. Yeah, and, he's, and then he just made it entirely independently. In a way, he's the modern-day Coppola and Lucas. Yeah. And then he sold it back to the studios and said, but you have to release it the way it is. And fair play to him. Yeah, I don't have a problem with Vaughn. And as well, um, uh, I won't be so priggish as to disregard those who were born into wealth. My dad sometimes feels like this. He says that those that uh, Eddie Redmayne, Benedict Cumberbatch and... Tom Hiddleston, all went to the Dragon School, all went to private schools. He says that they should be MPs, they should be leaders of industry, <laughs> they shouldn't be actors. Um, and, you know, on some days I do feel like that. But then on other days I think that I've no problem with Vaughan being connected and using his influence to... And he's married to Claudia Schiffer, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. I did, he's making... The films are fine. They yeah. don't... They really... They don't pollute my cultural atmosphere. Yes. If I want to engage with them, I generally have an acceptable time. They're not overrated, nor are they underrated. So, yeah, crack on, mate. You know, give some yep. more work to Mark Strong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> September 25th is going to be an interesting date. Okay. Three films. The Many Saints of Newark. It's uh, the Sopranos prequel film. Oh, dang, yeah. yeah. And his, his kid is playing him. Yeah. and uh, Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even know Gandolfini had a kid that acted, but yeah. He does now. The Trial, <laughs> the trial of the Chicago Seven... Do you know what that is? Basically, it's, it's Sorkin doing it. I think Sorkin oh. is writing and directing this historical drama that I think at one point was going to be directed by Spielberg, but he bailed. Um, the, study, uh, the story of seven people on trial stemming from the various charges surrounding the uprising of the 68 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, oh. Illinois. And also, it's coming out two months before what? Oh, the, uh, the election. Yeah, so this is like well-timed. And... Ooh. There's Eddie Redmayne, just mentioned him. And there's that guy, Yahya abdul Humeva. He's in that film. He's in the Candyman film, because I didn't know his name. Yes. So whoever he is, he must be doing well for himself. Well done him. Oh, right. But this is a great cast. This really looks like a Jeremy, cast. Jem, Jeremy Strong, who's great in Succession. Sasha Baron Cohen. Gordon Levitt. I haven't seen him in anything in a while. Michael Keaton, Eddie Redmayne. Uh, Mark Rylance. Ben Shankman. He's in the new series of Curb, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying <laughs> him in that. Um, John Carroll Lynch. From Frank Langella. Crikey, this is deep. And also, JC McKenzie has been in the last five Scorsese pictures. Oh, has he? Four or five. Is this, Scors- is this Sorkin's first film? No, he did Molly's Game yes. as well. We yes. had problems with it, but it didn't stem from his direction, which seemed fine. So that could be interesting. Certainly got a good cast behind it. Um, I do love Sorkin. Then a week after that, Venom 2, Death on the Nile, which is the new Kenneth Branagh... They're making a sequel? Yeah, they are making a sequel. <laughs> oh, all right, then, fair enough. I mean, again, this is it's a picture that I won't see, and it's it, not going to hurt me in any way, so... Um, Go for it, Ken. There's also The Witches, which I think is a Robert Zemeckis remake of that Witches film from Roald Dahl. Yeah, they shouldn't do that. So Zemeckis, yeah. Uh, Stanley Tucci, Chris Rock, Anne Hathaway, Octavia Spencer. Um, I'd love to see Zemeckis get his mojo back, but it doesn't feel, it really doesn't feel like it's going to happen, does it? It feels like he's become a very specific... He's locked into something mentally that he can't get out of. I liked Floyd a lot. I but didn't. I didn't connect with The Walk. What's the other one? He's done another one, hasn't he? Oh, it's um, Welcome to Marwin. Oh, fuck that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no I, I mean, I, I had some hopes for that, and then it's definitely one of those pictures where, in this day and age, if Zemeckis is getting three stars, then it's worth three stars. I think I've got the perception and the critical faculty to understand the kind of film that might be misunderstood. So, let's, for instance, let's say Tarantino gets two stars. That's a filmmaker that may have split an audience so severely that he's made an excellent film, a film that I love, but that some people t- that, that some people are turned off by, but not, not Zemeckis. Well, true, but you've also... Do you remember when I said, oh, that new uh, 
that new um, Sherlock spoof comedy story and Will Ferrell and John C. Riley's getting trashed. You actually said at the time, there's no way that's less than three stars. But all accounts would suggest that No, did I? Yeah, you were like, there's no way that's less than three it, stars. Yeah, it, was a bit, it did abysmally. It yeah. fell out the top. No one, like, no one, like, it's not like, it's not, we're not talking about a, a once in a time in a Hollywood situation where it's divisive, where some people hate it, some people love it, and there's some people like me that are, like, indifferent. Um, so... Tarantino might might do a two star film one day. People who've seen Grindhouse argue he has. No, fuck that. No. <laughs> haven't you seen? Have I haven't you, seen. It's the only Tarantino. You said you haven't seen Death Proof. I haven't seen it. It's really good. Yeah. And once again, I heard Planet Terror is good. Its woke credentials are uh, spectacular because it has a black lady, a Hispanic lady, and a Caucasian lady beating the shit out of Kurt Russell. <laughs> Hooray! So November the 6th is The Eternals. There's only two Marvel films out next year. Black Widow and this. It sounds fucking weird. Is this the one with Jolie? Yes. It's right. some kind of their gods <laughs> doing something. I don't know. It sounds weird. I'm sort of like, I would never, at this point, I'm not willing to bet against Marvel. But again, we, we've talk, we talk about all these people that have continued success. They eventually, it has to stop. It yeah. just has to stop at some point. I would say if anything's going to stop, it might be the Eternals because it just sounds on paper strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, if they're three star though, films, it? if the three star films are taking one point one billion, I'm not. Mm. I'm not willing to put actual money on it. But then I'm a coward because I've been saying for weeks that Parasite would win Best Film, but I didn't have the cojones yeah. to put the money on it, and now I'm gutted. Anyway, uh, you like this? I hope so. A sequel to a hit 1986 comedy that I think has one of Samuel Jackson's first film roles. I think. Oh yeah. So what's it? Is it coming to, to America? America yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Far out. Now, who's that? Is it Tim Story? Who's doing it? That sounds right. I will double check for you. Craig Brewer. Oh, Craig Brewer. So Craig Brewer is among the most black Caucasian directors working. He did. <laughs> he did Black Snake Moan. Did Hustle and Flow. Actually, that's a big weekend. So you've got Coming to America. This is December the 18th. Dune, the Villeneuve directed. Yeah. Could that be the thing that fells him? Certainly felled... Uh, <laughs> Old Lynch, yeah. Fells Lynch. God, that's awful. I know some people sort of quite like, but I would be interested to anyone make an argument that that's good. Because I'm not sure if any argument can be that it's good. Beyond, it, some bits are quite pretty. It's an abysmal film. No, I don't think it's abysmal. I watched it for the first time... Four months ago. I watched it two years ago at the PCC first time. And maybe the entire second half is boring to me, right? But I thought some of the filmmaking techniques are excellent because there's so much exposition to get through. Lynch, as a filmmaker, is is trying relatively experimental ways to convey that information. So it is kind of laughable when he has uh, voiceovers from Max von Sydow, like literally saying their thoughts, saying like, essentially like... um, Maybe Paul Atreides is the one to lead them. Yeah. So handsome as well. (laughs) And I I thought, what the fuck? Yeah. And then I thought, no, hold on a second. That might be the only way to do this. It was worth a try for Lynch to use that for cinematic. Okay, yeah. But then it's. But then what you might. I guess what you're saying is it might be unfilmable. But if it's it's unfilmable, the director should recognise that and not make it. Yeah. And this is why Lynch. Well, he got into it and then he realised. Because this is a really. Luke and I have talked about this a little bit. This is a really interesting moment in Lynch's career off the back of. Elephant Man, where he had sufficient latitude that Lucas approached him for Jedi. Yeah, well... I didn't take that. But maybe, the, the, but maybe this is an early... We, we were talking earlier about over-promoted first-time directors. Yeah. You direct one 
either very good or even just moderately okay indie hit like Safety Not Guaranteed and then get given the keys to the kingdom. Yeah. Um, maybe this is an early example of that. And, you know, and then also Lucas was looking for people. He wasn't necessarily looking for big name directors. I mean, Kirshner, I think he'd done some war film, hadn't he? No, no, Marquand, sorry. Marquand had done some like well-received yeah. war drama a few years earlier that Luke has probably seen and thought, that's pretty good. But I have my vision for this. I just can't be bothered to actually sit yeah. in that chair. Yeah. So I'll get Marquand in to do it. Yeah. And presumably he was thinking along some similar lines with that. Like he thought, oh, that elephant man was really good. Yeah, let's get him in. Well, I think that Marquand was definitely in the, in the nicest possible way was a puppet. Yes. And Kirshner, less so. Um, with Lynch... I think that Lucas, who I think understands cinema fantastically, has a great comprehension of cinema. I think that he he understood what a great director and technician Lynch was. Yeah. The promise that there is. And then, I mean, a year later, he makes Blue Velvet, which is fantastic. But this is the thing. I, I like... Uh... I like how a failure can make a director reassess what it is that they're good at. Yeah. And I think there's a definite element with June where he's going, well, one, no one is going to give me $50 million. So I've just got to see what I can do with two. And what is it that everyone loved about the elephant? I'm not saying this is how what he's thinking, but it's clearly forced him to refocus his voice oh, yeah, to his was... voice. And no one else could make Blue Velvet apart from him. I'm actually not a massive Lynch fan, but I love Blue Velvet. It's easily he's, There's film. so few directors working today. Yeah. Who makes cinema? Him, Malik, PT. Just to actually, just to clear you out on this. When you say that, are you not just saying they make <laughs> a particular kind of cinema that I like? No, what I mean is that they're expressing themselves as artists through cinema. So I don't think that Ryan. I liked Ryan Johnson's Knives Out, and I like Looper and Brick as well. But I don't think that they're expressing themselves cinematically with the same verve and purity that Lynch and Malick do. Yeah. I think when Lynch, Lynch has an idea in his mind and he can, in, he can use cinema to interpret that and that's his vessel just as a painter would paint. Like Spielberg does that. At his best he does that. No, Nolan, I, I would say I, I think it's a different thing and that's not to say that Lynch is better or worse than Spielberg but what Spielberg does, he understands how to use cinema to, to create a great film but Lynch is using cinema as a palette for his own neuroses and interests and thoughts, it's just it's just different. Yeah. For me, it's almost like the, the only an analogue that I would suggest is in I can't remember if it's in the original Ring, but in Gore Verbinski's Ring, uh, what the kid is capable of is essentially thought photography. If you put a blank X-ray within proximity, she can project her dream onto that blank slate. That feels for me like what Lynch does. Do you think Caruth is one of those? Good. Yeah, good example. It's probably why he's only made two fucking films. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. it's just upstream colours. Another one. It's just too much. Yeah. It's so he's so doing a very. I mean, I don't like upstream colour, but I can't argue that he's. It's someone distilling thoughts that only they could have into a thing. Yeah, and using using cinema to do it properly. Malik does it, and um, you know, one of my favourite directors of all time, John Demi, does nothing like that really. Yeah. So I'm not saying that it's one is better than the other. When I'm talking about this, and Aidan will understand. Like what Nolan did with Dunkirk, that's that's marshalling cinema to tell a story. It does cinema doesn't require dialogue. It yes. doesn't even require character. Yeah, yes. Lynch, Lynch can do that. You acquitted yourself. But late. sorry, I, sh I should have said I don't know about Villeneuve. I just don't know, and I think that this will probably be fine. But he, you know, he's a bloke that 
It's a bit like when Jolie did Unbroken and she had Deakins as DP and she had the Coen brothers write it. Villeneuve always has a really good DP. Yeah, but okay, but this is why... So basically your argument, calling back to other conversations we've had, is that uh, Deakins is cowing Villeneuve in some way. Carrying. Oh, carrying. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, uh... <laughs> all that, all yeah. that, all that Villeneuve is riding the coattails of Deakins. I think. But if that was the case, then why isn't Unbroken held in the same regard as any of those films like Arrival or um, Sicario? It's because Villeneuve's really good, really, really, really good. Right. So if Dune fails, that doesn't mean he's bad. But if it succeeds, it probably does mean he's good. We can put it like that, right? <laughs> Surely. So if 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 Dune's a fuck up, fair enough. Anybody it's, it's felled one of the great directors. Yeah, but if it's good, then I would, oh, sorry, that, I see yeah, point, yeah. At that point, I'll concede. Hold on, he might be onto something. Yeah. Okay, right, yeah. Because bearing in mind that this the writer of Sicario directed Wind River himself, and but, I, yeah, but it's not as good. No, it, no, it's not as good, but it's not far off. Um, and the other thing that's coming out on the 18th, along with Coming to America in June, is Steven Spielberg's remake of West Side Story. This, this, I think this could be interesting. I'll, I'll put it out there. I love West Side Story. I think it's brilliant. Um, it's got, it's just, the songs are amazing. Uh, choreography is amazing. I just like primary colours. It's just brilliant. <laughs> I love it. Do you know, who, you know who else loves West Side Story? One of their favourite films of all time. Not Trump. No, no. Maybe Jordan, Jordan Peterson. Bye. Really? Yeah, fucking adores Yeah, it pales, pales all of Spielberg and Zemeckis and Cameron and has learned no lessons from them that are worse. What I'll say about Michael Bay is that I haven't watched enough of his, of his recent films. I haven't watched his films in 20 years and so I don't know enough about him to really level criticism. So I wasn't saying that to yeah, no. make fun of you. But yeah, this is the, it's been explored on... Um, I think it's in every frame of painting. Michael Bay knows West Side Story is really good but he may not be able to explain it. Yes. So he can say, that looks fantastic. And he can do that in his own films, but it's as though he overuses it. He overuses stuff happening. But that maybe that's it, because it is a... I don't want to say garish, but yeah, it's everything. I mean, yeah. one, it's a, it's based on a Shakespearean text, so the emotions are massive. Yeah. But it's also, everyone's good looking, and every, all the colours are like the primest version of all those colours you can have. Yeah. Um, but obviously, it's directed by... Um, Robert Wise and is it Jerome Robbins that did the, that as well? And clearly they just it was just better directors who know what they're doing with that yeah. stuff. And the cast's great. Anyway, it's so it stars. Sorry, I don't know. Go on. But from what I gather, it's got something to do with immigration. Sorry, what's that story used to do with immigration, the way that it's presented. But it looks like that may have been what's prompted Spielberg to make this because it sort of got announced sort of shortly after Trump got elected. And I um. wonder if this is Spielberg channeling whatever angst he has about that hot button issue into this remake and uh, what are the remakes of Spielberg doing? he did War of the Worlds and actually another, that's another one because that was looking at that 1950s story and doing the post 9-11 version of it very good point yeah um, he was meant to do Cape Fear but did, they swapped he it he did always which was a remake of My Name is Joe but I haven't yeah. seen it so I can't comment on what, what the ramifications of him doing that may have been yeah, I don't know the original well. I mean, Always isn't very good, but the original may not be great anyway, by today's standards. But the point I'm making is, uh, it could be interesting. It stars Ansel Elgort from Baby Driver. He can dance. He can dance. Definitely. And he likes music. And then the week after that, you've got Crude Tune, Tom and Jerry. And then 25th, Christmas Day. What is it about America? Why did they go to a cinema on Christmas Day? It's weird. I did it. I saw it inside Lewin Davis. In America? On Christmas Day, yeah. Play to you. And then 25th, Last Jewel. 
is that Rudley Scott? Have I made that up? So this is Matt Damon and Ben Affleck doing something about. Uh, it's got something. It's something like a woman gets raped, and I think they're two soldiers that are <laughs> two duelists that are having a fight about it. <laughs> <laughs> it is Ridley Scott. <laughs> it is former best friends Jean de Caru and Jacques. Legree are ordered to fight the death after Carew accuses Legree of raping his wife in 14th century France. And it's written by Affleck and Damon. Yeah. this is So this is their first collab since Good Will Hunting. And Nicole Holofcener. Oh, Holofcener. Holofcener's fantastic. He's Holof- making a film about a duel and he made The Duelist. Yeah. This is fantastic. I hope he's not about to die. <laughs> well. Good Lord. You know, like kind of like coming full circle 40 years later. Anyway, my point is maybe those people want something, but we just don't know yet. And we'll find out. Oh, this is this brilliant. As the capacity to... to be good. So, sorry, well, we've kind of... Um, Jodie my... Comer, you know Jodie Comer is? My dad does, yes, because she's in The Killing Eve. She's really good. And she's also she is, she's got the his... Emperor's Daughter. Yeah, she's she's in Rise of Skywalker for about four seconds. Yeah. So, it's, uh, my exclamation's rather muddled what this is, but in summary, The Last Duel is directed by Ridley Scott, written by Affleck, Damon and Nicole Holofcener, and with Damon... And I'm Driver... thinking Holofcener wrote... Was it... Widows are Hustlers. No, neither of those. No. no so she's she, done something notable. She writes indie pictures with... Um, she writes indie pictures with Catherine Keener. Oh, sorry, no. She wrote Can You Ever Forgive Me and Enough Said. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, my bad. She's great, and I've, I try to see every film of hers at the cinema that I can. Wow. But this has potential. Yeah, I'll man, I'll it. be... Uh, all right, but, I mean, that's... December in the States, so we won't get it for literally 11 months, I suppose. Yeah, Oof. we are right in the Adam Driver adds another one. Just, I mean, Ridley's an old guy as well, but the Driver's murderer's row of directors is just astonishing. He's worked already with so many times. Yeah, no, definitely. They all seem to have honed in on him as the interesting guy. They fucking is. I, I, this is one of the things I had with... It was fine in Force Awakens. It felt, it felt fun that he was slumming it, right? By episode... I don't think he's slumming it in that. I think that's one of his best performances. But by ep... no, that's no. I don't mean to say he gives a poor performance. I mean to say it felt like a strong actor having fun yeah. in a franchise picture. By episode nine, it really felt beneath him, well beneath him. That's because the material wanes. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I actually so until Marriage Story, I genuinely would have said I think Force Awakens is his best performance because I think it's the film that. I think it utilizes his physicality in an interesting way because he is—he's a big guy mm. and he's broad-chested as well. Yeah, so he's quite You're imposing. Turning me on. Yeah, because <laughs> he's quite imposing. Mm. And yet that film, uh, and that film obviously plays uses that because he's like a menacing physical bad guy. He's going around chopping people up. But in the third act of that, he turns into a boy. I mean, it's sort yeah. of led into with that you're a creature chasing people with a mask, and he takes his mask off, and he's just a young man. And he cr- the way he crumbles instantly <laughs> when he realizes that Ray is a bit of a match for him. And he's basically a man who's, I guess, his connection to the Force is his privilege and it's unchallenged. But the second it's challenged, he crumbles and he's a boy and he cannot fucking hack it at all. Yeah. I just find that I do think his physicality is used interestingly in that. And it's, it's just nice to see him play someone, an adolescent effectively, which you wouldn't really get cast as in any other thing. No, because it wouldn't but, make sense. He's but but yeah, 35. yeah, exactly. But then, yeah. but, I, but then Marriage Story comes along and I just think, I, 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 was watching, I watched a film recently where I felt a good actor was only given one dimension to play with. And um, I think 
Marisol is a really good example of a film and a central performance that is just full of colour. You know, it, it, it's annoying that that clip of them arguing has become the thing that everyone who hasn't seen it knows about it because it makes it look like a really bleak film and it really, really isn't. Have you seen it yet? No. Oh, it's, it's, re- it's so rich in like honesty about all the different um, positive and negative aspects of what a really t- a really intimate relationship can be. And it, and it is dark at times, but it's also funny and it will also make you cry. And it's also just a film that really genuinely feels glad, a film that feels made by someone who really feels good to be alive and captures that feeling. It's really good. And you get all of that in, in, in Driver's performance. He is brilliant. Maybe you said this, maybe Espen has said it, but uh, Baumbach is the new Woody Allen and is possibly surpassing him. I uh, yeah, no, I, I, I did a review of it online and I said... I directly said it, cited Alan. It's not just the East Coast, West Coast tension that you get. You know, what's that line in Annie Hall where he says, oh, oh they take all the garbage and they just recycle it into television. <laughs> there yeah. is an element of that tension in there. But it's not just that. It's that he, Baumbach in this has shown that, like Woody Allen at his best, he can make scenes where the tragedy and the comedy are so close to each other. Do you know what I mean? It yeah. tips over in like a split second. It's so hard to do. And he just does it perfectly in this. And I'm, I'm historically have been hit and miss with Baumbach, which is why I might not agree with your assessment that he's surpassing Alan, but he certainly captured something that Alan had that very, very few directors, if any other, have in terms of how they approach comedy and drama simultaneously. You know what? Another thing is that we're now in a situation where we have our <laughs> we have our twenties analog for Cat and Jim at the beginning of the 90s, where Greta and Noah are making films at the same time. Who can... Oh, sorry, James, yeah, James yeah. Cameron and, yeah, and Catherine Bigelow. I, I'm not sure how good Greta Gerwig is. I like Little Women a lot. And I think, I, from the look of it, I'm going to like Lady Bird too. But for those two to be dating in a relationship and both making the best films of their careers, it's all, oh, wow, outstanding. And then <laughs> harking back to, as I said, when you've got uh, Jim making T2, Cat making... Point Break, and then both of them collaborating on Strange Days. Um, so, oh, yeah, long may this continue. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, do you have any gigs to trail? I don't have that much on, actually, because I'm... Actually, no, I've got one big one I can trail. I'm doing Vault Festival on March the 15th, 8.30pm, at the Horse and Stables in Southwark, I believe it is. How's that spelled? What? Vault. V-A-U-L-T. Okay. In the Vault. Not like Electrics. No. Because <laughs> it could have been. Yeah, Vault Festival. It's a fun festival. Um, they do lots of stuff, not just comedy. Uh, I saw some weird dance thing there a few years ago. But there was a lot of good stand-up, and my show is on. It's called Everything's Going to Be Alt-Right. You've seen a preview of it, haven't you, Fletch? Yeah, I did, yeah. Was it good? Yeah, I think so. And it's ticketed, but it's not that expensive. It's like five or six pound. And then once you hit Leeds, do you know what you're doing? What, comedy-wise? Yeah, I don't need to know about your new gig. I'm fairly <laughs> I, jealous, I'm just gonna if count, I'm honest. I'm just going to count, because you don't have a gig. <laughs> I'm just going to carry on. Um, I've actually already booked, even before I'd got the gig, I've booked to play the tryout nights for both Manchester Comedy Store and um, Birmingham Glee, which is a comedy store style thing. Birmingham? Yeah, Birmingham Glee. Glee. Glee's like a comedy store style thing that exists in Cardiff and Birmingham and perhaps elsewhere as well. Isn't that a long way from Leeds? Two hours in the car. That's a long way for me. Yeah. I say I'm doing the tryout for Glee and Comedy Store. 
they are gigs at the store. It's not like I will gig in front of the person that runs it. So I do have to go to the new material night at Glee and do a gig in front of 100 people, 200 people, whatever. And it's the same with the comedy store. The, the comedy store's tryout night is their gong show. <laughs> so I have right, to try right. and beat the gong there. And, oh. and there's other stuff. There's a really good comedy club called Hot Water Comedy Club in Liverpool. And they have a tryout night that I've yet to sign up to. Is that two hours as well? Uh, it's more like an hour and a half, I think. This is this is this is mad to think, really, because here we are in Ealing, and it is an hour and a half to get to li- somewhere in Liverpool Bo. Street. Not Liverpool Street, but yeah, no. I, I, well, this is the thing. It's not as mad. I I have done gigs in East London where it's taken me ninety minutes to get there. Yeah, yeah. So it's not that way. I mean, it's a weird thing. I mean, I heard Ellis James talking about this on the radio. Like he said, his friends used to think it was mental. That he would drive two hours to do a gig that he wasn't getting paid for. Yeah. It is literally like flushing your money away. Except that it's an investment that if it pays off, is very worthwhile. Mm. <laughs> so if I can pull it off, yeah, I might have lost lots of money now, but when I'm presenting some shit Saturday night game show on ITV, who will be, ITV. be laughing? There won't be an ITV in five years. ITV Stream, whatever it's called. ITV Online. Oh, uh, Britbox. Britbox. He'll be on the old Britbox. Yes. Right, well, um, I do hope like, number one, I'm going to collar you into coming back to the capital for our dominant conversation. Well, I am. I already have gigs booked that I want to honour and come back for. So when I have them, I will let you know and we can maybe squeeze in the afternoon. You're welcome to Kithia as well. Oh, cheers. Obviously. Um, I, will, <laughs> I don't want to sleep in the same room as a VHS for the film Daryl. Oh, what? Data analysing rather than my <laughs> films? Come on. Or vice versa. <laughs> Vice versa, Tootsie, and question Or an Ewok adventure. Fletch has a lot of shit on VHS. Actually, no, I'm being prejudgmental because I haven't seen two of those films. But is Daryl good? I haven't watched it yet, though. Yeah, so we'll have you back. We're going to do an episode on Andrew Dominic and his three pictures. And then, of course, Blonde comes We've out. We've been trying to say that for so long. I'm going to have to. Re- I actually re revised them all. Re- I revised them all, and we didn't do it. Well, we need to. And now I'm going to have to re Oh, I did watch Chopper last week, so I'm on my way. Yeah, we watch Chopper. them in March, and I'm sure that we can fit it in. So, yeah, we've got that upcoming, and also we'll first look blonde. Until then, cheerio. Thank you very much for joining us on The Evening Glass. Comedy's Aidan McCaffrey will return to our studios later in the year, and Luke and I will be inviting you back into the electronic labyrinth around the time the clocks go back. Until then, a few pictures for you to look out for at the flicks. Out now, Celine Shammer's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Justin Kurtzel's The True History of the Kelly Gang, the photograph by Stella Maggie, and opening on March 20th, the intriguing prospect of John Turturro's long gestating Lebowski sidequel, now titled The Jesus Rolls. Follow us on Instagram to see what we're watching weeknights after work. And if you'd like to support the podcast financially, visit us on eBay at One Sensational Shop, with a P, where we've posters, computer games, laser discs, VHS tapes, all manner of collectibles available for sale. And all proceeds go back into the running of the podcast, also available on iTunes, Spotify and Stitcher, and our own website, One Sensational Shop.